Help support the Candid Frame in bringing you awesome conversations with great photographers. You can do this by contributing as little as $2 a month to our Patreon campaign. That modest donation helps us to bring a quality show to you every week. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. This is Ivarian X, and this is the candid frame. When you make the choice to become a commercial advertising photographer, you've taken on a big challenge. Early on, it's about creating unique work that gains you entrance into a very competitive field. And once you gain a footing in the industry, it's just as much work to keep your place in a world where there is no shortage of young and hungry photographers eager to take your place. But Randall Ford has maintained a successful career over decades, all the while producing work that is both personal and innovative. His portraits and conceptual photographs demonstrate technical mastery, but also a wonderful imagination. While people today see his career as a great example of success, he remembers his early years when things did not come so easily. Take, for example, his first celebrity portrait session with the actor Tommy Lee Jones. When I'm working with people that haven't been in front of the camera, one of the techniques I use is small talk. I want to get them comfortable with me and I want to get them opened up and vice versa. And it really sets the stage for just an easy kind of flow between photographer and subject. But this was my first true celebrity. But I still thought, hey, I can make some small talk with this guy. Perfect. I'm from Dallas. He's from Dallas. And I kind of dug up some information about him. And we started talking about high school and where he went to high school in Dallas. And we were talking about football for some reason. And I was like, um, because he played football in Dallas, apparently. And I was like, yeah, Mr. And this is, let me step back. This is while I'm shooting him. I'm trying to have this kind of small talk conversation. I'm like, Mr. Jones, you know, uh, I heard you went to Dallas and went to school at St. Mark's. Heard you play ball there too. What position did you play? And he just looks at me right through the lens of the camera and he goes, what do you care? And I just, <laughs> I just stepped back and I was just like, Oh, you know, I just tried to, you know, dust it off. Like no big deal. I was like, Oh, you're just making small talk. No big deal. But I mean, inside it was like a punch in the gut. Randall's latest project and book is called Animal Kingdom. It features a collection of portraits, not of people, but wildlife, including a lion, a chimpanzee, and even a giraffe, all photographed against a white, gray, or black seamless. Randall's images are often derived from precise planning and control, but for these images, he had to accept the unpredictability of his subject matter. You know, you try to work with whether it's a dog trainer or a lion trainer, you know, you try to work with them to kind of get them to kind of stay in a certain spot, but that's, it's kind of about it. And so there's certainly an amount of control that has to be relinquished in order to capture any sort of wildlife, whether you're in a studio or whether you're out, you know, on the Savannah. So that was actually a really good exercise for me as a portrait photographer to relinquish some of that control and kind of allow for the unexpected to happen. Because in many cases, these animals, they'll, they'll kind of surprise you and they'll give you a little glimpse of, of their soul or what we see as their soul. And that was one of the most enjoyable, you know, parts of this experience. It's just, you know, being in the presence of these magnificent animals. 
We'll talk to Randall about how he used his business skills to create a name for himself and how Texas barbecue started and almost ended his photographic career. Welcome to the Candid Frame. Well, Randall, welcome to the Candid Frame. I'm really pleased to have a chance to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, your work is amazing. The breadth of the work and the quality that you bring to it is, is really exciting uh, Exciting to see. But I wanted to start with a question. When I was doing my research, I thought would be a good place to start. And what's the connection between your early photographic career and barbecue? <laughs> <laughs> oh... That's a good. That is. That's a good question. Uh, I've always loved barbecue, but it actually, my um, my uncle is was is it was in the restaurant business, and he actually was one of the owners of Rudy's Barbecue, which is a barbecue chain in the south southwest and in Texas. And one of my first jobs as a photographer kind of right out of school was photographing barbecue for Rudy's barbecue in Texas. And, uh, you, you, I'm not sure how you dug that up or if that's where you <laughs> led this conversation to go, boy, that was, that's a blast from the past. I mean, it's been years since I, uh, it's been years since I photographed any sort of food, much less barbecue, but that really was one of my first photo shoots. It's, it, it's funny. I, I, my, my, my uncle was one of the first, guys to actually hire me to take pictures and he let he he, he let me shoot some barbecue for one of his restaurants and right. then another restaurant i was shooting just some like typical food for him and i almost burned down his his <laughs> restaurant <laughs> i so if you i don't know if you remember dynalites oh yeah yeah dynalites i was using oh, dynalites yeah. at the time and you know they have a pigtail that comes right out of the head mm -hmm. that plugs in you know to the extension to, to connect to the pack and so i i was shooting and i was like oh we don't need this light right here and instead of just turning the pack off and then pulling the pigtail out i just yanked the pigtail out <sighs> And fire literally shot out of that pigtail, oh, wow. out of the extension, and it almost burned down the restaurant. So <laughs> <laughs> that was my that was the extent to my career as a food photographer. Oh man! So was this this uh, right after college? Yeah, this was man. This was almost a, a year after college. So I graduated from Texas A and M in two thousand four with a business degree, and then I. Um, I assisted some photographers for a little while, and then I moved down to Austin to actually work for another photographer. Mm -hmm. And then during that time, I took some freelance jobs here and there when they came available. Was that a conscious choice to study business with the intent of becoming a photographer? It was not. Uh, I feel very lucky that it worked out that way. So I went to Texas A&M, and I got into photography as kind of as a, 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 as a sophomore, I started shooting for the school newspaper. I started shooting sports and features and some portraits here and there. And I, throughout college, I kind of just slowly fell in love with photography, but I was still kind of on this business track that was kind of just the intention from the beginning mm -hmm. without knowing exactly what I was going to do in life. So I continued the business track and also continued my passion for photography. And I continued to shoot for the school newspaper and other student publications and local magazines and some freelance jobs here and there, just kind of whenever I could pick them up. So it was since the beginning of my career, it really was, um, you know, a merging of art and commerce. And, and, I, and I believe that really helped 
as I, you know, matured in my career, you know, as a photographer. So how, how did you go about, you know, sort of launching the early parts of your career? You almost, you described your almost disastrous beginning and end <laughs> in terms of your food photography for career. But, you know, you're known largely for your portrait and your commercial work. How did you start putting the pieces together to land that kind of work? Oh, uh, it was, it was certainly a process that didn't happen overnight, but I definitely took action on a lot of, a lot of things that kind of propelled me in the right direction. I would say my, the first thing that I did, or one of the biggest things that I did to help accelerate my early career was getting in touch with mentors and really, really relying on them for not only knowledge about the industry, but also feedback and criticism on my work as I was growing as a photographer. I always said that I want to know what's, I want to know what's, you know, what's good in my portfolio, but I, more importantly, I want to know like what's not good, like what's not working here and what can I improve on and how can I get better? So I constantly kind of sought out mentors and some of those mentors were in the advertising business and some of them we're not as connected to the ad business, but the ones that were in the ad business, that was a great segue to eventually try to get clients and, you know, work with advertising agencies. So I, I did, you know, mentorship was a huge deal, but then also shooting, uh, you know, relentlessly for my portfolio was also a big part of kind of making that break from assistant to photographer. Young photographers, especially when they want to get into the commercial area, one of the things they fixate is developing a style or identifying a style for the, for themselves. Right. Was that sort of a cr critical component of you sort of landing that work or was it something else? It was actually a pretty intentional component. Um, thanks to one of my mentors, I was introduced to, probably in 2005, 2006, I was introduced to a photographer named Satchel Waldman. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but he was one of the first guys, I believe he's based out of South Africa. Uh, he was one of the first guys that was doing kind of that real crunchy, illustrative, hyper-real aesthetic and style. And that and one of my mentors, Marty Butler in Austin, he introduced me to that work. And I saw that and I was like, wow, that is, that is really cool. And this was, you know, long before Capture One had the ability to make, you know, find, you know, adjustments and tweaks like that mm -hmm. to give it that illustrative look. So I really, really dug in deep into Photoshop trying to figure out how can I give images this illustrative kind of hyper real look. And after just a ton of just obsessive trial and error, I've, I kind of figured out a little bit of a formula that was a combination of lighting and a combination of post-production that really helped kind of give all of my work a fairly cohesive aesthetic. Okay. And that was something that I really have tried to do throughout my career and, and also try to evolve, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. But I really felt like as a young photographer, and I still advise young photographers that, man, when you're starting out, your aesthetic in your portfolio, it needs to be very consistent. It needs to be very cohesive. Um, it, it, it's almost like the earlier you are in your career, the more tunnel vision you need to have. Because when someone hires you, they're kind of taking a risk on hiring mm -hmm. you. They're putting their job in your hands. And if you can't produce, then or if you can't produce what they're expecting, then it's, it's going to be problematic for both parties and problematic for you as a photographer in the long run. So that was definitely part, you know, very, very kind of intentional. Yeah. 
Did it take some effort to sort of trust that choice since it really hadn't been kind of tested, field tested to the degree that you were getting a lot of clients? Because right. I, 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 I've talked to so many young photographers and their whole concern is they really don't know what the other people want, especially the people who are writing the checks who are going to pay you. And so their sort of backup philosophy is, well, I'll show them that I can shoot anything, right? Right. But when you go all in to a particular approach, a particular sensibility, uh, maybe even a particular subject matter, you know, it's kind of like going all in. So how do you, right. how do you sort of quantify how much of it was, a, a, I guess, a viable risk? You know, I mean, I was so young that it, it was it was easier to take that risk than it would be now. Okay. But I also was looking at it kind of from my business school mentality is, okay, how can I differentiate myself from the competitors, from my competition? And that was just clearly one aspect that I could do to differentiate myself from the competition mm. is to create this kind of branded illustrative look that, I mean, at the time there wasn't you know, there was like 10 guys doing this, you know, you know, by 2006, it was, it was not being done that it wasn't that prevalent. And so differentiation was definitely, I, I guess I knew that as a young photographer, I had to differentiate myself and I had to give clients a reason to hire me and, and, and not hire the other photographer. Cause it's just, it's so, it's so competitive. It gets, you know, and it's getting more and more competitive every day, but that kind of thinking about it from that business aspect of how can I differentiate myself you know, for my competition and provide something unique to to the clients, it was almost kind of a must for me to to go down that that road. And I don't know at the time if it was that you know intentional, if I was that clear about it in my mm -hmm. head. But in hindsight, I you know I feel like I kind of got lucky in that regard that I had that sense of kind of tunnel vision. I mean, I also one of the other things that I also was doing is not only did I want to have this kind of cohesive branded aesthetic that was really consistent throughout my work, but I also wanted to shoot complicated composites that were difficult to put together that not everyone could put together because I, I was kind of a, I mean, I'm kind of on the border of a generation that grew up on digital. And so I had been fiddling with Photoshop since like version 3.0 in high school. And I had always just kind of loved the, dig the digital darkroom. And so I kind of tried to further kind of play with that or kind of utilize that in my career as I was developing. One of your first shoots was a portrait of uh, Tommy Lee Jones, <laughs> who is a notoriously cooperative subject matter. Oh, man, what's he ever? <laughs> so was, um, I'm, I'm being sarcastic for people who can't <laughs> see my face. So tell me about landing that, that gig, because it was very different to how you shoot now. Yeah. So, But tell me about that, that first gig, and, and just tell me the story behind it. Sure. Right when I started assisting and other photographers and started slowly doing my own thing, I was really trying to get my work in front of magazines because I wanted to do portrait work. D Magazine in Dallas was one of my first clients. And I had done a few kind of little small jobs for them when I was in Dallas. So I lived in Dallas for six months after college. And then I moved down to Austin after that to work for another photographer. I had done a couple jobs for them while I was in Dallas. And then I'm moved down to Austin and this job came up with them and they called me and they said, Hey, we want you to photograph Tommy Lee Jones. He's going to be down in San Antonio next week. It's for his, for this movie that he's working on called three burials of Melchiatus Estrada, which was kind of pre, it was, a, it was a couple years before no country for old men. Hmm. And so when I got that call, I mean, I mean, I was, 
and we're talking like a year out of college. I mean, I was green as, <laughs> as could be. I mean, when I got that, I mean, I was even nervous, like getting that call, much less by the time I got down to San Antonio to photograph him. So I traveled down to San Antonio from Austin, which is like an hour and a half drive. And I didn't have any assistance. And now, I mean, I don't go anywhere without a couple of assistants. And so I went down to San Antonio to photograph Tommy Lee Jones without any assistance. I had a couple alien bees in the car and my cameras all set, ready to go. I showed up super early and I scouted this. It was this old bar restaurant in San Antonio with just character in every corner, inside and out. And I kind of scouted it out. I found, you know, five or six places that I think could could have worked for a great shot. He shows up and I'm I'm super nervous before he even shows up. He shows up and I'm introduced myself, you know, hey, Mr. Mr. Jones. I'm Randall Ford and calling him Mr. Jones is probably the first mistake that I made that day. (laughs) And he just kind of grumbled and he went over to the bar and (laughs) got a beer. (laughs) And this is at 11 a.m. Anyway, so then he he walks back over and I'm like, okay, I tell him what we want to do. Let's do a shot here, here, and here. And he's like, okay. And I had asked him, I was like, you want to go outside and do a picture? Because the walls in this restaurant just, the exterior had character that was just unbelievable. He was like, no, it's too hot. And it was, it was August. So it was really hot, even inside. So we're shooting a little bit. And I, you know, when I'm working with people that haven't been in front of the camera, one of the techniques I use is small talk. Mm -hmm. I want to get them comfortable with me and I want to get them opened up and vice versa. And it really sets the stage for just an easy kind of flow between photographer and subject. But this was my first true celebrity, but I still thought, Hey, I can make some small talk with this guy. Perfect. I'm from Dallas. He's from Dallas. And I kind of dug up some information about him. And we started talking about high school and where he went to high school in Dallas. And we were talking about football for some reason. And I was like, because uh, he played football in Dallas, apparently. And I was like, yeah, Mr. And this is, let me step back. This is while I'm shooting him. I'm trying to have this kind of mm-hmm. small talk conversation. I'm like, Mr. Jones, I heard you went to Dallas and went to school at St. Mark's. I heard you play ball there too. What position did you play? And he just looks at me right through the lens of the camera and he goes, what do you care? And I just, <laughs> I just stepped back and I was just like, oh, you know, I just tried to, you know, dust it off. Like no big deal. I was like, oh, you're just making small talk. No big deal. But I mean, inside it was like a punch in the gut. <laughs> oh, man. So anyway, so a couple minutes later, I'm still photographing him. And, you know, with celebrities, you got like 10, 15 minutes, Mm -hmm. especially for something like this. At this point, I'm photographing him as he's talking to the writer. And I just, I said something like, you know, Mr. Jones, I'm, I'm really glad we're not, we're only shooting inside because I'm just sweating my butt off in here. And I mean, I was sweating bullets, man. I was just like kind of a wreck and I'm sure he knew how nervous I was. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, Mr. Jones. I'm, you know, glad we're not going outside because I'm just sweating my butt off in here. And again, he looks right at the camera, right through the lens, right into me, right into my soul. It felt like, <laughs> and he he goes, "You're sweating because you're nervous." And I just, <laughs> I just really, I mean, it was like another just punch in the gut. Wow. And I just packed up my stuff. I was like, "Okay, our time's up. Thank you for your time, Mr. Jones. I appreciate it." But. Six months later, I found out that that image was actually included in Communication Arts Photo Annual, which was a big, a big goal of mine at the time to be included in such a prestigious magazine. So, it, the, the the pain and the agony was all worth it. But it, <laughs> there was, you know, there was a lot of lesson to be learned there. And you talk about, you know, baptism by fire and really just like throwing you in the heat of battle. And it's like you're going to figure this out one way or the other. And that was kind of part of my 
you know, I only assisted for, you know, less than a year. So a lot of my learning in, in, in dealing with subject matter and dealing with clients and whatnot was kind of on the fly and on set. And mm-hmm. so I kind of like, you know, I cut my teeth with some subjects and with, with some clients and whatnot. So, but it's all a learning process all a learning process. And, uh, looking back on it, that was, that was quite a, quite a, quite a, uh, experience. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd love to do it again. I, I don't know what, I don't know how I'd react now. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. Cause you know, you worked fairly simply for that shoot, but if anyone watches a video of you working now, man, it is quite the, you know, kind of production. Yeah. Quite the production, you know, with so many assistants and lights and, you know, whether you're photographing people or animals, Right. which we'll get into in a few minutes. But you know, I think people look at, if they saw a video, they look at a photographer who's doing that and they think, oh, that's the way they've always shot, right? Right. And I'm sure right. that it's sort of developed sort of over time and as needed things. So talk to me about that, that process of, of basically expanding you know, your right. resources and working with people and, and working towards bigger and bigger and bigger um, photographs. Yeah, expanding the production was was a process that happened incrementally over time and also was dependent on the budget for each job. You know, the Tommy Lee Jones thing was like I had I had one I had one Alien B light and a Chimera softbox and that was it. And then I balanced that with Phil. But then there was something in me. There's always kind of been something in me that enjoy really enjoys the technical aspects of photography and lighting and I I always kind of wanted to kind of push the technical boundaries, I guess, to you know, craft and aesthetic. And so that has definitely been something in my career that I've kind of slowly progressed into, you know, I didn't just go from, you know, one alien B to like, you know, six lights on set, but I was testing what it looks like to use six lights and what it looks like to use just one light. Mm -hmm. So it was certainly a progression of kind of goes back to learning. I was learning so much while I was doing this. I was learning to use a ton of lights and, and, and now as I've matured as a photographer, I'm learning to use less lights and so many times less is more, you know, like the, the greats, like Richard Avedon, it was, it was so often, it was very simple lighting further down the road in my career. I'm definitely am more interested in, okay, how can we create a, a, a timeless lighting aesthetic that still has kind of some style and some polish to it, but it, it, it it's all kind of a, you know, an, an evolving process for sure. But there was there was definitely something about it, about the technical aspects of photography that sucked me in that I really gained some enjoyment out of. Yeah. Hey, we've just relaunched the new Candid Frame email list, the email list and the newsletter will allow us to connect in a way that other social networks haven't done so far. As we expand the content we offer through TCF, it's the best way to keep up with what's happening. So I invite you to sign up for the newsletter, which I'll be using not only to share all the different things we're doing, but also to begin a dialogue between you and me. As a way of thanking you for signing up for the mailing list, we're giving away three ebooks that I've written over the past several years. It's just a small way of saying thank you. You can sign up by clicking on the link in the show notes or click on the tab on the Candor Frame website that reads newsletter. Was the working on the personal project a means for you to both produce a distinctive body of work and to also develop that, that personal style and approach? 
It definitely was. And that's, I think that's really important for a young photographer, an evolving photographer, a matured photographer is constantly working on personal, different personal projects, not only for your creative fulfillment, but for your, you know, creative evolution and, and energy as a photographer. So I was always big on, and still am, personal projects. In my earlier career, when I was going from, you know, the Tommy Lee Jones shots to some of these more difficult composites, I actually, uh, there was this one shoot that I did and I wanted to visually recreate a Guinness World Record. And it was of this guy who had sat in the bathtub with like 87 rattlesnakes for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to reinterpret it with a girl in the bathtub, just uh, thought it would be visually more more interesting. And so I basically, I got together with a prop stylist and I told the idea and we built this set in studio and, you know, I got a model to sit in the bathtub. And then the, the day before that, I got the rattlesnake, like the rattlesnake guy who lives in, uh, in Texas. I got him to bring like 87 rattlesnakes down to the studio and it was just unbelievable. And then we, I composited it all together. So we shot these rattlesnakes like instead of since I in order to composite them together, in order to composite them on top of the girl that was sitting in the bathtub, we had a blow up doll in the bathtub and we had these rattlesnakes like crawling all mm. over this blow up doll. It was just crazy. And the studio was really it was really cold that morning when we first when we first went in there and they started dumping these snakes out and they didn't really move much and they were kind of quiet. But then as the day went on, it warmed up. And boy, those snakes started moving faster and they started getting louder. And it was, it was a little unsettling. Ooh, that sound must've been. My camera was mounted in the ceiling. So it was an overhead shot. So I wasn't, I was able to kind of stay far away, but it was still not without risk. <laughs> when I saw the video of that, I, I, the first thought that came to my mind, the last thing I would want to hear is the Wrangler saying, yep, I'm missing one. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because there, well, we... <laughs> there were so many in that tub. And there, granted, so there many, wasn't yeah. a live model in there. But man, yeah. I mean, one is bad enough. I, I'm not phobic about snakes, but these are rattlers. You put that many rattlesnakes together. I, oh, yeah. I, it, I, was, it, was, it was crazy. And even just the sound of, of almost 100 snakes this, the sound that they collectively made was crazy, but it was, that was an example of like trying to just do something interesting, do something complex that not everybody was trying to do at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I, I pursued a lot of that, that those types of personal projects early in my career. So you create a picture like that. So what do you, what do you do with it? How do you put it out there so that you do get more than just likes on Instagram that you, you actually right. leverage it? so that you get people to come to your website to ask for your portfolio to actually right. get a gig? Yeah, great question. I mean, at the time, I don't think there was Instagram. I mean, this was probably in 2008, maybe. It, it was really just, for me, it was just direct mail. I immediately got interested, in, not interested, but I immediately knew that I needed to do direct mail in order to get work. So I started utilizing modern postcard for postcards kind of from day one. And then when I would do a more complex project like this one with the rattlesnakes and whatnot, I, I tried to do a more kind of distinct uh, printed piece. So for this rattlesnake picture, I did this big poster that was folded down into like a, you know, eight by 10 piece. And then I sent that out to, I don't know, a thousand people or something. But early in my career, I was pretty aggressive with marketing. I've always kind of 
you know, maybe because of my business background, I've always really enjoyed the marketing aspect of photography. And uh, I, early in my career, I actually, I did this kind of promotional piece with an agency in town. It was kind of a cross promotional thing that we got a printer to chip in and the agency designed it. And it was a bunch of cool portraits. And I actually, and it was a nice little printed six by nine booklet. And I actually FedExed that to maybe 20 or 30 creatives in Austin, Texas, just to kind of try to make sure I got my name in front of them. Mm. So I was pretty, I was pretty aggressive with my, my sales tactics, especially as a young photographer. So how did you target overall? Because one of the things about effective marketing is knowing who you're trying to connect with. You can't just send out sort of a blanket promotion, especially since those things don't come cheap. So tell me about what that, what that process was for you. Sure. So, you know, when, when I was younger, like I was there, the budget was more limited of course, of what I was going to, how many, you know, pieces I was going to send out. So now I'll send out 4,000 pieces and I used to send out a thousand. So I would, you know, I would really just try to just hit tap into advertising agencies and art buyers at agencies and creative directors at agencies. And if, if the subject matter was applicable to any brands that they were working on, I would try to target that, but that, that wasn't always uh, feasible. So, uh, it, it, in a way, it was kind of a blast, but because I, it was mostly in the world of advertising photography, it was it was more manageable to create a smaller list. Mm. And I started regionally too. You know, it's interesting. If I would have gone to New York or LA, it probably would have been harder for me to become a photographer. But I, because I got my start in Austin, especially at the time, there were much fewer there there were, there were less photographers in Austin. So I was able to to branch out a little bit quicker than I think I could have if I was in New York or LA. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, perfectly. And, and, and I mean, the other thing is, you know, when I, when I graduated from school, I, I knew that I wanted to gain some, I knew that I wanted to become an advertising photographer that did editorial commissions when possible. So because I had that clarity that I knew that I wanted to do advertising photography, it was easier to get there. And advertising photography with, a slant on conceptual portraiture or uh, lifestyle, you know, conceptual work. Yeah. Well, your, you know, your shoot with the rattlesnakes is not the last time you ever worked with animals. Your latest book uh, that you're kind enough to send me uh, is all about portraits of, of animals. And they're quite amazing uh, images. Thank so you. So where did the idea for this uh, come about? And you know, what were some of the sort of the machinations you had to go through in order to make them happen? Because this is not a casual endeavor. This is no, on a scale quite a, <laughs> that's quite huge, literally. It was, yeah, it's quite a, I mean, it was quite a project. So basically these are all in-studio animal portraits on either white or black backgrounds or, or, or off gray or black backgrounds. And they're all lit with a couple strobes and I either shot them in studio or I developed or I built a mobile studio wherever that animal was. So there was no easy way to, to do these. And, you know, throughout the process, there were times when I was just like, oh, could I have made this any harder on myself to, to photograph these portraits of animals mm. in studio? To answer your question, to circle back, this project actually started a long, long time ago, um, probably eight to 10 years ago, uh, DJ Stout of Pentagram Design in Austin, he came to me and at the time I was doing these real bright, poppy, punchy portraits on bright colored backgrounds. 
and he came of people and he came to me and he said, Hey, do you think we could do these punchy, bright portraits, but of cows in studio mm-hmm. and not, not people? And I was like, well, we can try. So he basically wanted me to shoot cow portraits in studio for this redesign of a magazine he was working on. So we, and I was like, absolutely, let's try it. So we went to this barn in the middle of Texas on a rainy day in November. We photographed like 10 to 12 dairy show cows over the course of the day. And this is before it was halfway easy to change the background color. So we actually were using different backgrounds throughout the day. I mean, we had like 10 bright colored, you know, savage colored, savage background papers that we had in this barn. And they all got destroyed in one way or another, you know, by either the cows or uh, or (laughs) other barn animals. But that was really the initiation or the inception of this pro of this project is creating a portrait of an animal that in a way is humanized or anthropomorphized and, or, or, just a portrait that connects with, you know, a human. I did that. And then I, I pushed that out to the world. I sent postcards of these cow portraits and they won some awards and um, they were really well received. And I actually did like, actually shot some advertising jobs with cows in, in those, you know, whether it was for a product that helps, you know, a feed product or, you know, some sort of like cow pharmaceutical. It was, it was amazing that there, they literally, they came out of the woodwork to, to find a cow photographer. <laughs> well, like you said earlier, in terms of, you know, finding your, a, unique, a unique niche, right? How many, yeah, I how mean, many you talk about a cow photographers niche. are there? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, and that certainly wasn't intentional at the time, but it just, it sort of happened. And they, they, nobody had really done it. You know, nobody had done cow portraits. And so that actually led me to get some, work photographing dogs and cats and then that eventually led to some other animals and after i did this shoot for a a dog and cat like pet brand you know for like pet treats it was like a week-long shoot in la and we had the studio and at the end of that week i wanted to do a piece just for my portfolio and i had never photographed any any predators in studio so I wanted to do the Wizard of Oz trifecta, the lions, tigers, and bears. Mm. And so I worked with a trainer to bring a lion, tiger, and bear into the studio. And I photographed them throughout the course of that day. And that, and, and that was, so I started photographing the cows. That was eight to 10 years ago. And then I, I kind of went back to it four or five years ago. So I started, you know, I did the lions, tigers, and bears maybe four years ago. And that experience was just just it was just surreal being in the studio with a big cat off leash was just it was just un, an unbelievable experience that I'll never forget especially that first that first time that I was in a studio with with these predators with these huge amazing magnificent powerful animals you know when you're working with um human subject there's this sort of natural collaboration that comes right. from it because it's another human being and if you're good with people, you can sort of read a human being and you have all these sort of tricks and things you can do in order to get them engaged and, you know, massage them into the photograph. Uh, wild animals, not so much. Right? Not, 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 no, not so much at all. And, you know, you try to work with whether it's a dog trainer or a lion trainer, you know, you try to work with them to kind of get them to kind of stay in a certain spot. But that's, that's kind of about it. Mm-hmm. The There's certainly an amount of, control that has to be relinquished in order to 
capture any sort of wildlife, whether you're in a studio or whether you're out, you know, on the savanna. So that was actually a really good exercise for me as a portrait photographer to relinquish some of that control and kind of allow for the allow for the unexpected to happen. Because in many cases, these animals, they'll, they'll kind of surprise you and they'll give you a little glimpse of, mm-hmm. of their soul or what we see as their soul. And that was one of the most enjoyable, you know, parts of this experience is just, you know, being in the presence of these magnificent animals. Yeah. You know, I, I can't help but think that, you know, photographing these animals, that somehow your relationship to how we see animals and how we experience animals has changes right that especially in our world we kind of we don't really deal with animals beyond our domesticated pets so there's this sort of disconnect you know between us and the rest of the creatures that we share the world with Um, i'm wondering what this project sort of how it impacted you personally in terms of your relationship Mm -hmm. to animals i mean it definitely brought me closer to the it definitely made me appreciate our connection with the animal kingdom in a much deeper sense. And, and that's kind of one of the goals I think of the project is, and I've never verbalized it like that, but that's, you know, for, to, to be able to connect with nature on a, on another level or an interesting level or something that some in a way that someone might not have, ex- have experienced is definitely, you know, part of the purpose of this project. And so for me, especially having experienced all of this, you know, firsthand and in person, it's certainly given me a, I wouldn't say understanding, but a, a definitely, a, you know, a greater sense of appreciation and gratitude for just the, what, what mother nature has so masterfully and beautifully created. Hmm. You know, cause I was looking at the, at the portraits and it really, one of the things that came to mind is how we, put more value on certain animals because they look attractive to us because we like the way they look and other animals that we consider ugly, we sort of disregard (laughs) or put, you know, or value a lot, a lot less and how that's often used by people who are well-intentioned in terms of trying to save the habitats and save, you know, animals that, that are threatened Right, um, but that's for me personally. That's what I thought about because the the beauty, the, you know, the fa- photographs render these creatures really beautifully. And but I, I kind of thought about that, and I don't, I, you know, I don't really have a question behind it. But I just thought mm-hmm. I'd give you uh, sort of a, yeah, my personal response a, to it, and just see what you you have to say about it. That's an interesting observation. I mean, I wonder if I mean one, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the project is that yes, I photographed lions, tigers, and bears. But I also did like cows and chickens and horses and goats. And I mean, I found somebody that had a squirrel that had a (laughs) skunk. So many animals that you wouldn't necessarily go out and like try to take a picture of. And that that's what was, you know, I think what's made what made the dairy cow portrait series so interesting is that it was like, wait, no one's really seen dairy cows like this in this light, so to speak, Mm -hmm. ever before. I don't know. It does, in a literal sense, shed light on on some of these animals, especially the ones that aren't necessarily seen in a more glamorous way. You know, because a, a lot of times, you know, you just don't see a not a lot of times you never see a skunk or a a, a squirrel glamorized. Yeah, and I got to tell you that image of the skunk is phenomenal. 
Thank I, you. I kept going back to that because if for people who have not seen it yet, you have it's composed around the S curve of the white stripe on the skunk's back, and the way his body is navigating the, I guess the backdrop, you just uh-huh. got the perfect S curve. And I just looked at that, and I was like, "Wow!" It's just thank you very much. So part of the, so I, you know, I've got these shots of animals um, on like a light off-white background, and then I have this kind of black on black series of all black animals on black backgrounds. And that series is sort of a, you know, there's, there's, there's a technical exercise happening there and kind of like shooting it in a way where they sort of blend into the background and the black fur kind of just melts away into the background. Mm -hmm. But then I, I thought to myself, I was like, gosh, wouldn't a skunk be awesome photographed on black where you really highlight kind of the white you know, in his tail and in the, in the top, on the top of his neck. And sure enough, I eventually found, I eventually found a skunk, found somebody that had a skunk that had raised it since it was a baby, I guess had rescued it since it was a baby and kind of nursed it back to life. And uh, they had removed the skunk's glands. So it wasn't uh, capable of spraying me, which is good. <laughs> That's another thing. And it's interesting about this process is meeting all of these different animal lovers, animal rescuers, animal trainers, kind of, I started to weave this web and this network of all these different kinds of animals. So it's like, I met somebody with the longhorns and then they, they directed me to somebody with, you know, the buffalo. And then I met somebody mm-hmm. that had a skunk and she's also like, Hey, I have a squirrel too. Do you want me to bring the squirrel? I'm like, sure. And then they may have directed me to a sloth. And then that owner may have directed me to a, a specific kind of horse I was looking for. So all of these, it, it, it's, it's, inter, it's an interesting, you know, intertwinement of the animal kingdom, you know, and, and, and people's relationship with the animal yeah. kingdom. You know, you had talked earlier about in terms of your development of your style that, you know, you started adding more lights, getting much more complicated, and then you sort of have returned to working a little simpler. And with respect to the lighting here, because the lighting is really critical to, towards this, how much of a role was trying to work relatively simply with respect to lighting, you know, and, and, and the mechanics of photography play a role in, in creating such a diverse, you know, selection of photographs? It was definitely important. I mean, I, I feel like I sort of hit this project at a good time in my career because the last five years I have sort of evolved a bit and begun to appreciate uh, timeless photography a little bit, a little bit more. And photography will always have trends, you know, to a degree, but I sort of tried to create a lighting and aesthetic on these that you didn't really notice too much Mm -hmm. because I wanted it to be about the animals in a way that, Richard Abaddon's portraits of in the American West were just about the people. It was so simply constructed and lit that it's, it was only about them. And so I really wanted to take that idea of simplicity and timeless aesthetics and apply it to this imagery. In some regards, you know, it was pretty simple because I used two to four lights, depending on the size of the animal. Uh, I mean, on some of the smaller animals, I could just use one actually. I tried to keep the lighting, you know, unidirectional. And so it it was just coming from, you know, one direction, typically from the side, occasionally from overhead. 
um, whatever I thought might complement the animal best. And then I tried to also kind of fill in the shadows a little bit, but not too much. So it was kind of an exercise in creating a timeless aesthetic. Um, it felt, felt, you know, pretty sophisticated, um, but not distracting either. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, no, it does make sense. One of the challenges I, I would think that you face is because you're photographing of a, a great variety of animals, all who, whom sort of respond to light because of either mm-hmm. you know, the nature of their skin or their coat, their relative size. Right. Each of them is very different. But when you look at the body of work, besides the fact that it's either a white, gray, or black background, there's a, there's a consistency in terms of the look. So I'm wondering how much was what you did in post responsible for, for that? Good question. Um, there was a percentage done in post that definitely helped unify the aesthetic. But overall, it wasn't, there was some, there's definitely some polish to this imagery, but overall, I tried to capture as much of it is in camera as possible. And I shot 99.9% of, I think I probably shot the whole collection tethered to a laptop or a big screen computer. So I was seeing the images come up, you know, right away Mm -hmm. so I can make some adjustments to the lighting. But there definitely is, as far as just the overall contrast and curves applied in Photoshop and a little bit of dodging and burning, that for sure was intentionally modified in post-production to give it a cohesive aesthetic. The other thing that I intentionally modified was was the backgrounds. And if I was in a true studio uh, environment, I, I, could get a, I could get the backgrounds pretty darn close. If I was in a barn with a horse or a cow, mm-hmm. then I, I set up like a big, you know, 20 by 20 silk that I could just at least get a clean cut out on. So some of the backgrounds had to be modified, but I, I actually chose like a, I mean, all the backgrounds are like, you know, 241 RGB across the board. Yeah. And that was pretty intentional to try to keep them all. Cause I wanted to just have them all throughout the book, the same. And then the, the, the black on black images were a little different, obviously just, but, but similar trying to create a cohesive, similar aesthetic. Yeah. Cause I'm really impressed with the printing of the book. Cause thank you. Because yeah, I've seen so many books, and I know how difficult it can be to render all all those different colors, textures, tonal values uh, from page to page really consistently, right? It's right. one thing if it's just text, right? It right. just needs to be readable. But in terms of how each photograph has to be true to what your vision was for each photograph when it comes to a print right. run, man, there's uh, it can get very complicated. So I commend the, the, the work that you did with the publisher to get that right, because it it's wonderful, wonderful result. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of fine-tuning. But at some point, you've got to let it go. You know, just like the expressions of the animals or what they're doing, it's, you can only be a perfectionist to a degree, and at some point, it, it begins to turn uh, unhealthy. Yeah. So after doing this, or probably during this experience, because it did take you a while to produce it, what influence, if at all, did it have on your other work that you were doing with people and the stuff that you were doing with compositing? What did you learn from the experience that you applied to that other work there? Well, I would probably think twice before I took a project this big on again. (laughs) I mean, this was just a, I mean, it was a, I mean, no pun intended, it was a beast of a project and it was a lot to bite off. And it was, uh, um, the logistics were sometimes very challenging uh, and sometimes it got, you know, pretty expensive as well. So logistically, it definitely was challenging, but it, it also 
I'm kind of going back to my thoughts on creating or shooting in a timeless aesthetic is it, it kind of drives me to want to do more of that to shoot more work in a sophisticated, timeless, you know, beautiful aesthetic, you know, still being on, on trend, but also, you know, rooted in a timeless in a timeless look and feel. So I, as far as, you know, what the next personal project is, uh, I'll probably, I don't know. I'll probably, it'll probably be something with people for a little while. And then it may, I may, I may come back to animals. I, I may even, I mean, I could even see doing a whole book on cows, on cow portraits. And, and it, <laughs> if, if that was the case and it, the story would, would truly have, you know, come full circle. <laughs> but you know, that brings up a, um, something that I'd like to talk to you about this whole idea of, you know, the kind of stuff that you put out there that eventually becomes part of your identity as a photographer and, you know, you do this great stuff with animals, you do this wonderful compositing work, you do this great portrait work. Because when this book gets out, a lot of people are going to look at you, oh, you're that animal guy, right? Right. But you don't necessarily just want to do that, right? You just don't want to become no. the animal photographer. So, so in terms of how you sort of market yourself to not only people who I've already worked with you, but people you would like to work with. How do you sort of balance out that you want to promote this book, you want it to get out there, you want to get people's attention, but you don't want to be pigeonholed into doing just this kind of work? (laughs) That's a fantastic question. And it's very relevant to myself. It's very relevant to, I'm sure, a lot of the photographers that are listening to this. And I think it's something that any photographer doing a project on this scale is going to deal with. And for me, I mean, I, I probably only shoot, you know, two to two to three assignment jobs a year at most that are for animal advertising. And would I like to shoot more? Sure. But my bread and butter work is, you know, is, is portrait lifestyle advertising photography. So the way that I see this, the way that I see these different projects is they're, you know, a, a branch or an arm of your photographic journey. And if you can keep that kind of rooted in what you, you know, what, what you are as a core photographer, like let's say a conceptual portrait photographer or a conceptual lifestyle photographer, then I think these projects can be used to get attention and get your name out there and use as marketing. But it's, it's, you definitely have to be clear, you know, when they come to your, you know, commercial and advertising website that, Oh, this guy doesn't just shoot animals. In fact, while he shoots mostly, mostly people and, you know, more traditional advertising work. Will, will I get pigeonholed by some for sure? But I think the, you know, the creatives out there that, you know, appreciate projects like this can really can, can see beyond that and see that it is, it's a journey of, or a branch of my photographic journey from a, how do we address this as photographers and how do I keep, stay branded? You know, it could be as simple as, you know, if I send this book to a client, then I'm going to put a a portfolio, a, t- a small little portfolio of a, of my bread and butter, my ad work, you know, in that in that book, so that they know mm-hmm. that that's that's really you know, that's really what I do. This is a creative, you know, this is a you know creative experience in my you know fine artwork, you know, an experience uh, or a experiment, excuse me, in you know in portraiture. So certainly many facets and aspects to use to tackle that, but it's just such a relevant question to, you know, any photographers that are, that are, that are listening and how you, 
how you can, because in advertising, it's, it's pretty easy to get pigeonholed, but you know, if you can use this to get attention, to garner attention, and then to get your people work in front of, uh, advertising agencies, then I think, I think that's, that's a, uh, you know, a useful tool. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. I have a lot. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to give you a really, I'm going to do something really cliche and I'm going to say Richard Avedon because I, I'm not kidding. I have had younger photographers that are in their mid twenties or early twenties that do not know who Richard Avedon is. So if you're listening to this podcast and you do not know who Richard Avedon is, go, could go buy a book of Richard <laughs> Avedon's work on Amazon, because for me, he is the quintessential portrait photographer and his work looks just as good now as it did then. And for me, for my experience with Richard Avedon, I saw his exhibit in the American West when I was first getting into photography. And I still remember the moment that I saw those prints that are yeah. like four to six feet tall uh, in, in the museum in Fort Worth. And it, it just gives me chills thinking about it. So I have to say, go, go look at Richard Avedon because he's just fantastic. Yeah. And there's a great documentary on Avedon that came out several years before he passed away, which I highly recommend as well to get a, a, a great sense of who the man was and you know how he saw portraiture. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And you can watch it multiple times over and over and get something <laughs> new from it every time. Absolutely. But sir, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. You're so welcome. And the other photographer I was going to recommend, and he I don't know if he's been on your podcast or not, but uh, Dan Winters. Oh, yeah. He's been a guest I mean, three times on this show. Oh, he has. Okay. Yeah. Oh. He's, great. He's just, just amazing. So go check out his work too. All right. Well, yeah. it was great speaking with you. Thanks to Randall for spending time with us. To find out more about Randall and his work, visit randallford.com. And also, I'm going to be in New York on the weekend of October 13th, and I'm conducting a small, intimate workshop that Saturday. I'm limiting it to only four people. It's a little bit of an experiment that I'm trying, and it should be a lot of fun. The workshop is not listed on my website, and you'll only know about it if you're a listener to the show. It's just $399, and if you're interested, email me directly at info at thecandidframe.com. There's only one slot still available, so reach out to me as soon as possible to secure your spot. I've also released my latest ebook, Lessons from the Street. It's a book in which I share some of my greatest mistakes as a photographer and what I've learned from them. It also offers some valuable tips that may help you to avoid or learn from your own mistakes. It's just $7, and your purchase helps to support the work we do for the show. You'll find a link to purchase it on the website or the show notes. If you're a fan of The Candid Frame, take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. It helps our ranking, but it also creates awareness of the show. Though it only takes a few minutes, you'll be making a huge difference. Take the time to do it today. Thanks to MWS from the U.S. for their five-star review. 
You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, you help us to meet the cost of production and help us to bring you these episodes each week. You can also make a one-time contribution via PayPal. It's your support that helps us to bring you these conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. Do it today. Thanks to Jeffrey Ragel, James A. Johnson, Paul Nitsche, and Michael Badalamenti for their recent contributions. We appreciate it so much. It was your support that allowed us to create the free Candid Frame app, which is the easiest way to access every episode of the Candid Frame. Available for both Apple iOS and Android, you automatically receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet. And you can easily search for episodes based on name or keyword and save your favorite for repeated listening. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandorframe.com. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at Ibarian X. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>